Hello and welcome to the program. I'm Todd Melby, the Black Gold Boom reporter for Prairie Public. And with me today is Matthew Henderson. He's the author of The Lease. He's a poet, but he also worked in oil country in Western Canada. Uh, before college, he worked in the oil fields in Saskatchewan and Alberta, including working many, many months in, in the Bakken. His new book of poetry is called The Lease, and The Million, an online literary magazine, called the book a sneakily brilliant, beautiful work. And Dwight Garner of the New York Times liked it, too. He called it spare and elegant. Matthew Henderson, welcome to the program. Hi, Todd. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks so much. I'm very excited to talk to you today. Uh, it's not often that that there's a poet who's also has a history of working in the oil fields. Um, yeah, I, I think that that's part of probably why I've had some good response to the book is that uh, um, a lot of the time you've got these two separate worlds of academia or art and then this other world of, you know, actual people doing work. So people have seemed to respond to that. Now, you grew up on Prince Edward Island. How did you make it to the oil fields in Western Canada? Um, I took the path that a lot of people do from Eastern Canada. Um, there's a huge population of kind of, uh, I wouldn't say migrant workers, but the workers in Alberta and Saskatchewan who come from the Eastern provinces, um, Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, Prince Edward Island, and especially Newfoundland. Um, not a whole lot of opportunities um, in some of those Atlantic provinces. So a lot of people end up going out to Alberta, Saskatchewan, um, and working in the oil field there. Actually, they've got they've got flights and things set up to take people straight from Fort McMurray in northern Alberta right to Newfoundland to get back to their families. Um, I went out a little bit differently than that. My my father actually ended up going out and working for uh, at that point my my deceased uncle's company, and then uh, I finished high school and there was a job waiting out there and I, I wasn't quite ready to go to university yet so I just kind of tagged along and worked for my first year for that company as well. Let's take a break from your personal story and have you read uh, one of your poems. How about, how about we hear Service Rig? Service Rig. Half these men are boys, like you are, but yell so loud the cracks in their voices are hard to catch. The other half, giants, older than the rig itself, they knew this oil before it was black. A bare chest here is thin and folded into itself a thousand times. You've never seen them take the head off the pump jack. It's clean in the dirt when you arrive. But you get to see the service rig rising. The tongs turn on. Watch the youngest man on crew climb the derrick and stand, harnessed, coveralls dropped from his chest and tied with the sleeves around his waist, up where no one can yell at him to zip up. No one can tell him to remember Charlie, where he can feel the prairie wind beating his chest like the skinny fists of a woman who almost wants him to let her go. Wow. Uh, thank you. So th that poem kind of speaks to a bit of freedom that uh, Derek hands must feel when they're when they're up high. Yeah. And it's it's a bit of an imagined feeling, too. You know, I've been. I've been up on some equipment, but generally I shouldn't have been up there. Um, I've, I've never worked as a derrick hand, so I've never had that feeling. But, you know, it's a bit of imagination, I guess. And for folks who don't know, a derrick hand is uh, the person on, on a drilling rig who who goes up really, really high. And he's he's harnessed in and he kind of stands at this, this platform that's maybe 80 or 90 feet above the floor of the drilling rig. And he he's often the guy that connects the pipes. Yeah, that's right. On a, on a drilling rig or a service rig. And I think that it's from an outsider's perspective, you know, without all of the dangers that you wouldn't understand looking immediately at the rig, he's, he's the one who appears to be in the most obvious and immediate danger, you know, standing, standing up very high. But the, 
I think that that height combined with the flatness of the prairie is what is what emphasizes that feeling of freedom, you know, that sense that you can see just until the end of everything. What effect did the prairie have on you? Yeah, it's it's interesting. A lot of the time um, in the book, I'm I'm kind of making reference to this sense of of uh, loneliness, and I usually when I'm talking about it, I don't mean it in the sense of you know like oh I wish there was someone here to talk to, but more more the feeling that you are maybe the only person around, um, and the prairie really emphasizes that when you can kind of stand there and look out and not really see much of anything you know, for miles and miles and miles. And when, when the horizon is just so very far away, you know, that limit to what you're able to see, um, it can emphasize the fact that you are in, you know, you, you are the only person around for quite some, quite some space. The last poem that we had you read, uh, Service Rig, uh, touched on the subject of, of danger, and so does this next poem. Why don't you read Newell for us? Newell. You can see the smoke by Vauxhall, a short day, a shallow frack. You reach home, but keep driving, through brooks, past the patch motels, to Newell and its oil-smudged sky. As a child, you painted your face this color, ash from driftwood burnt on the beach, jellyfish drifting upside down, charting dead angles, the sand against your stings. A blowout, they both guess, Mike in back, king cab, and the soup driving. It's all sour, too. You hit a barricade a kilometer out, firemaster trucks everywhere, the campground evacuated. Two dead when the stabbing valve went. The pipe swung so fast it took one guy's face clean off. But you only know this later. On that day, you drive with your asses off the leather, so close to yourselves, toes curling after something solid, a foothold inside your steel-toed boots. You're listening to Main Street on Prairie Public, and that, that, that poem is, uh, is called Newell, and the author is Matthew Henderson. He worked in the oil fields in, in Western Canada, and he's our, he's our guest today. So, Matthew, was there ever a case where you were really scared of being injured? Um, there were a few times. I think that most people who, who spend, you know, um, a year or two or something like that in the oil field will run into a situation where they had um, a legitimate fear of, of injury. Um, the thing that's more present though, than when, when something actually goes wrong is just the, uh, kind of the sense of alarm or alertness when you're about to do something, you know, when you're about to light a flare stack, um, or when you're about to open a well after a frack and you know that there are, you know, uh, 40 MPA, um, pressure on that well, and you can feel it kind of rumbling underneath you. And then you slowly, there's that sense of urgency or danger that's always there. What does MPA mean? Um, it's millipascals, so it's it's just the pressure that that we use. I guess um, I guess actually there's a difference in in Canada and and uh, and in the states. So we would be using millipascals. I think you use pounds per square inch there. Of course, because we're sticking with the old standard English version, right? <laughs> That's right. Yeah, yeah. I wasn't thinking. <laughs> right, right. But but maybe you could talk a little bit more about that about the pressure you feel at certain times. How you can sort of feel the power of of what's under the ground, and that's about ready to come up. Yeah, certainly. I mean, especially when, when you first begin doing things and, and you don't quite understand the actions that you're taking, you know, as a, as a really green um, worker. Um, and instead, you're mostly following instruction. And so when your supervisor, who's got a lot of experiences, you know, grab that lever and slowly begin turning it to the left. And you can look at the gauge and you can feel um, 
because when a, when a lever is pressured up, when there's a lot of pressure behind it, it becomes really difficult to pull. There's a lot of resistance um, and you can feel that resistance. And it's, it's almost as if that resistance is telling you, you know, what you're doing is not a smart thing to be doing, even, even though, you know, it's, it's exactly what you should be doing for your job. So there's that sense of just, you know, I know that this is the correct thing to do, but something is telling me that this is, you know, a dangerous thing. Did guys talk a lot about the danger? Um, not, no, not really. I mean, it's not, you don't walk around frightened all the time. Um, it's just this kind of like very quiet feeling that you would get maybe in your gut. Every, I, I've had one supervisor who told me, um, he said that every single time that he would open a well after a frack, he would be nervous and that he was really worried about there coming a time when he wasn't nervous anymore because that's when mistakes happen. Why don't we have you read uh, Wake Up? Sure. So Wake Up is just uh, kind of a poem about the day-to-day, about what you end up doing um, when the day starts, when you're about to go to work. Wake up. This morning begins at 3 p.m. You don't shower. The grease of last night's work already collected around the hotel drain. They sell gum in the lobby your fifth pack this week, just in case she touches your hand as she takes the cash, in case she wants your story, in case she wants to tell you hers. By five, you're in the truck. Chuck kicks the clutch. You can't drive stick. Cuts onto the highway with serious rock and dirty talk radio blaring. He tells you he had a coke problem, but you learn that's not a problem at all. You barely speak, There are so few things now that could happen to one of you and not both. Tonight will be 12 hours plus two driving. There were 12 days like this in the last 15, 182 hours by the end of the night. You don't see lovers this often. You don't see lovers. Halfway there, you start to like the drive. Find deer outside your window in the heat and the air. And though their novelty has faded, you feel skin in the leather under your forearm, the snap of muscles contracting, bird fur, like they're leading you to the lease, as if you could be led anywhere else. That's Matthew Henderson reading from his book, The Lease, and that poem is called Wake Up. There are uh, several things I, I like about this poem, Matthew, and and one of them is this, uh, is this notion of, uh, of family. I talked to some roughnecks who worked on a drilling rig together and they they really said they you know they spent so much time together that that they really consider themselves family and that seems to be expressed in this poem yeah it's it's that feeling that that becomes really strange where you can work you know i didn't quite have the uh the experience that a roughneck would of working with maybe the same crew um for months at a time um but certainly i would work you know we we worked in pairs normally or in groups of four um and just the hours and hours and hours that you spend together, particularly on a night shift when there's a bit less actual work to be done and there's more monitoring um, of the well. And it's just the two of you there um, for 12 hours at a time and there's just nothing but time. Um, and you really get to know a person uh, very quickly, even through just a few shifts. Do you get to know the person because you end up talking so much or just through feeling or some combination? There's there's kind of a double sense of things, you know. Inevitably, you end up talking with each other a lot. Um, but you get this second sense from being near someone. It's almost like 
like the objects in your house, you know, you know how to move in the dark. You can go to the kitchen and get a glass of water. And when you're with someone for that long, when you're doing the work together, you kind of know that you can reach out behind you without looking and the hammer handle will be put in your hand. Um, and that someone's going to be reacting with you and you kind of respond to each other, um, with less words, which is interesting. And it's, it's kind of a different experience than I've had, um, in any other jobs. And what about this, uh, this idea that a guy goes in and buys the same pack of gum over and over, just hoping that uh, the woman behind the counter will will say something to him. Yeah, I, I mean, that, that kind of responds to that idea that I was talking about earlier of loneliness. Um, you can get this sense, particularly if you're working away from home. Uh, I know that a lot of the time guys will call it a, a hitch when you go away and you do work away from your home for a while. Um, and when you're on a long hitch, when you're staying in a hotel or in a camp for, uh, for 30 days or 90 days or something like that, um, you can start to feel really isolated. And that's that sense. Um, this one is, you know, I can remember a time being put up in a hotel for something like 40 days. And I spoke to my supervisor and then I spoke to the person who I bought my meals from. And that was it for those 40 days. Otherwise you're alone. Um, so it's, there's just that kind of sense where you're hoping for some kind of meaningful connection, but, but, you know, of course it's in vain. You're not, you're not really making any connection either. <laughs> and so how did you cope with that? Um, it's just, it's time, you know, I mean, I, I was, I was pretty fortunate. I did, you know, four month stints after that first year. Um, but some of these guys, that's, that's what they deal with. That's how they live for 40 years at a time. I, I wish I knew how you coped with it. It's, it's kind of a strange, difficult time. I, I guess you just look forward to that moment when you, when you go home, when you go back to your family. How much respect do you have for the men and women who were, who were doing this year after year after year to provide for their families? An incredible amount. You know, this is, it's a difficult job. It was a difficult job for me to do for three months at a time. Um, in the book, I talk about the things that you can't have. You know, I talk about um, how close the relationship is with, with your supervisor um, and with the, with the men you're working with. And if you look at the reverse side of that, if that's where all of your time is, then it's, it's so difficult to maintain those other relationships at home. Um, it's so difficult to look forward to the things you're actually doing this work for. Um, and some people manage to do it and they manage to do it and, and not really complain about it or write a book about it. So I have a lot of respect for that. <laughs> right. They just do the work, save the money, go home. That's right. Yeah. All right. Why don't we hear hear about uh, one of the one of the characters in your book? Um, uh, a guy named Dave. Dave talks about this one guy. Dave talks about this one guy. This one guy. This one guy was on lease. The frackers failed their pressure test, and the line split, and he wasn't anywhere near it. Nowhere near it. And yeah, so it could separate your legs from your body. But that's why he wasn't anywhere fucking near it. See, and that's why it's a test, right? It's called a test. But this guy quits, really. He goes and gets himself a shrink who gets him on comp because he had a traumatic experience. Like a soldier. Like from fucking Iraq. But all those air gunners from Lakeside, you know, they wake up screaming most fucking nights. No shit, they do. And then they go back to work the next day and they kill themselves a hundred more cows. And you remember that day when we were out there and the oil carried over, shot out the stack and the whole lease went up? 
And you and I, we stood at the tank and we fucking worked in that with all that fire behind us. And yeah, you pissed yourself. So what? You pissed yourself because you didn't have a choice because that's what work is, right? Yeah, I, I really, really like this poem. And I, I think it's because it, it feels so real. It feels like there really is a guy, a guy named Dave. And even if there's not really a guy, guy named Dave, there are lots of guys like Dave. Yeah, I've, you know, the, I mean, there is a guy named Dave. Um, <laughs> and there are a lot of guys named Dave. And, and this is um, what I've done a lot of the time in this book is I've kind of taken the personalities of four or five people and turned them into one. Um, but there are a lot of a lot of these guys out here and I've had this conversation a few times probably. <laughs> and is it a conversation you like to have? I mean, it's, it's interesting because I'm, you know, I'm coming from two different worlds toward this. Now there's a part of me that thinks like, yeah, that is work. That's what it is. You know that when you sign up that there's going to be this danger. Um, and then there's the other part of me that says, you know, if a, if a guy can't take that danger, absolutely. He should go and see a shrink. Um, and it's the coming together of those two worlds that really intrigues me, which I think is what drew me toward writing this poem. And is there is there some uh, machismo or macho-ness about, you know, a guy that would have to see a shrink and he should just accept that this is dangerous work? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, anyone who's been a part of any kind of, um, kind of male-dominated world um, is familiar with this kind of machismo, I think. Um, this idea of like, the hyper-masculine, the super tough. Um, and a lot of the time it's people, it's people reaching toward that ideal, you know, of, uh, doing things like in this poem where, where he talks about, you know, one guy peeing himself, but staying there and working, it's reaching toward that. It, it means, you know, it's not that you're not frightened. It's not that things aren't difficult. It's just that you do it anyway. And I think that that's, that's what, you know, a character like this is trying to get at. One of the guys I interviewed in North Dakota was a roughneck from Montana, and I got to talking to him about the stickers on the back of his pickup. And one of his stickers said, you know, I'd rather F fight or trip pipe. And he said that his stickers were sort of not not just a an embodiment of sort of his attitude towards the world. It was basically also he needed to show other roughnecks how tough he was, that he sh- wasn't a guy that should be messed with. Uh so, uh, you know, in, in that comment, it made me think that, you know, there's there's obviously some of this, well, I've got to just show the other guy how tough I am. Yeah, of course. I mean, you never want to be the guy who who turns down work or who doesn't do something. It's it's also that kind of attitude that makes things dangerous sometimes. Right. Um, I know that I've seen I've seen people, you know, doing jobs without the right safety gear or things like that. But no one wants to be the person who, who is that kind of, you know, perceivably weaker voice of reason who says, no, I, I, I don't want to do this. We don't have a safety line or, you know, something like that. So there's definitely that sense where you, you can't ever be the weakest one on crew. You can't ever be the weakest one on lease. All right, let's, let's meet somebody else. Uh, why don't we meet uh, a guy named Gary? Gary. December 25th is 60 hours long double time and a half to let his kids call Santa daddy. The wife wears Sears diamonds under the collar of her housecoat, drinks Starbucks homebrew, and goes barefoot all day, waiting for the 6 p.m. shake of a one-ton in her driveway. The kids remember him mostly by his smell. If you asked them to guess, they'd say something between Walmart packaging and the garage floor. Some days he comes home to silence, sits at the table in coveys or dirty jeans, 
feels his house surround him, the plasma screen, doilies, angels on the wall, lets his gut fall to his lap, waiting for someone to finally find him out. That was uh, Matthew Henderson reading from his book of poems called The Lease, and that poem is called Gary. Uh, the Lease is published by Coach House Books in Canada, and I'm sure you can find it at your local bookstore, or, or if not, order it online. Uh, this is Prairie Public. I'm Todd Melby. I'm the Black Gold Boom oil reporter. And uh, Matthew, one of the things I wanted to ask you about was this, uh, this notion of uh, blue-collar voices in poetry. Um, Dwight Garner, when he reviewed your book in the New York Times, he said that, um, that these distinctive blue-collar voices remain a rarity, especially uh, in our poetry. Why do you think that is? I think that a lot of the time when people turn to poetry, um, they're doing it uh, to try and experience something different. Um, poetry is a place where ambiguity is is a uh, is often beautiful and and um, it can lead you to think and understand things. Um, and a lot of the time, the workplace, particularly the blue collar workplace, um, is somewhere where ambiguity is is really not favored. Um, so there's some natural conflicts between, uh, I think, poetry and, and this kind of like working class world. Um, and then I think that it might be that it's the way that poetry is, is presented and kind of marketed, spoken about, is that um, people who might have an interest in this, in this kind of blue collar world, um, as you put it, uh, don't realize that poetry is something that there's that there's any value in being interested in. They're being told that it's not for them. Um, so I think that that contributes to the kind of the lack of of blue collar poetry. Yeah. So poetry is seen as this sort of upscale literary thing, as opposed to something that uh, that everybody can can enjoy. Yeah, absolutely. And and a lot of the poems that we are exposed to are things that we are told aren't very accessible. Um, straight from school to, to anywhere else, you know, and particularly if you look at the movements of poetry in the last, um, you know, 30, 50 years, um, as we move toward more conceptual poetry, um, which is, you know, an excellent thing in its own right. Um, but as we move toward that, and it's maybe using language in a different way, language in a way that isn't as easily accessible, um, people can begin to feel as if it's something that isn't meant for them, as if they aren't supposed to understand or approach. Well, let's finish with one more poem from uh, Matthew Henderson and his book, The Lease. Let's finish with a poem called, Joe Talks About Snubbing. Joe Talks About Snubbing. Most dangerous job in the patch, really. I won't even do it. Clint, you know Clint? He lost his soup on a snub job, his first week of field work, too. Clint told me the rig burned so hot they had to pry bones from the metal. That's a close casket, boy. Rough service. Rough. But yeah, it's tripping under pressure, basically pushing pipe down a hole that wants to push you back. So when the patch itself gets so goddamn angry, but you don't remember the rest. You can only think of Joe's elbows on the table, dirty or freckled, when he told you to avoid the nipple. When he mimed lifting a breast with four fingers on his left hand and tilting his head, darting his tongue in and out under the imaginary tit. Right there. That's what they like, just underneath. Get your tongue in there, boys. My ex-wife, real good girl, Christ. She giggled like fuck for that. That's uh, Matthew Henderson reading from his book, The Lease. Let me ask you this question about the, the oil patch. You've been, you've been away from it for how many years now? Um, it'll be three years, three and a half. And do you ever miss it? Do you ever want to go back? 
Um, sometimes I miss it. You know, I'm, I'm a college teacher now. I'm teaching English. And when I've got that stack of papers and it just seems like they won't go anywhere. Um, and you're marking or you're standing up in front of a class talking. Um, I miss the physical exertion. I miss, I miss knowing that I would leave in the morning and when I came back at night, I'd be tired and know that I had done some work. Um, and have that feeling in my body like I've accomplished something. Be able to look out at a lease and see the equipment that we moved in that day and see how something is different, something's not like it was before, um, and know that I did that. There's a real sense of accomplishment that comes with uh, physical labor that I definitely miss. All right, Matthew Henderson, uh, thanks so much for joining us today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, Todd. That's Matthew Henderson. His book is called The Lease. It's published by Coach House Books in Canada. And uh, he worked in the oil fields in Western Canada, and he now uh, teaches poetry in Toronto.